welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. scripture this morning that um, the message will come from is from Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are here for another Lord's Day message. I pray your servant would not be an impediment for what you want your people to hear from sacred scripture. Anoint my lips with clarity and open the hearing of those within earshot of this message. And all the people belonging to God say, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are uh, welcome, everybody. We're sure glad to see you here. On the way in this morning, as every Sunday we come in, uh, usually I drive and and Kay will pray as we leave our home and out of our driveway. And on the way in, she she turned to me and very tenderly said, I thank you very much for choosing me to be the mother of your children. And I just said, you're welcome. Uh, what else are you going to say? <laughs> True story. But anyway, in all serious, uh, we love our mothers here, and, and uh, I, would, I suspect I would contend with every, every child in this room that when I say uh, Kay's the best mom, I would have to, there would be a long line willing to argue and debate me on that. But we're sure glad everybody's here. And um, this isn't a... Mother's Day themed message. But the mothers we have in this room are mothers who hold to the Word of God. And so we are not going to deviate from the, the, the pattern and the trajectory and what we've been doing here in the, in the book of Genesis. When I'm in the pulpit here on a, on a Lord's Day morning, you know that it's very likely we will be continuing in the book of Genesis, and so we are here today. 
And within this portion of sacred scripture may very well be the strongest passage in the Bible about the evil in the human heart. Joe spoke about it at the Reformed Roundtable on Thursday evening. We talked at great length about it. And the knowledge of good and evil has led to this low point in this portion of Scripture. And again, I've said it before, as we began in in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God, and just took off from there, that it didn't take us long to get to where we're at today. In fact, here we are in chapter 6 of the the book of the entire Bible. And I thought about that as I was uh, putting, composing the message, looking at the scripture and where we're at. It didn't take long. I have a small Bible that has no margin notes or any notes, footnotes or anything like that. And so I was looking at it and I, I looked down and I saw, okay, I'm on page six of this Bible. So then I flipped to the end and I saw that there are 1,269 pages in this Bible. And yet here we are on page six and we see the state of mankind and we see the heart of God so wonderfully uh, revealed to us and expressed to us. And we see uh, here a society that has decayed beyond recovery in God's estimation. And the refrain goes like this, the Lord saw, the Lord grieved, the Lord said. And as we consider this wretched state of man, this passage provides a window into the heart of the troubled creator. The sorrow God has is over what has become of his noble creation, not over the coming destruction itself. And is there any greater pain suffered than perhaps uh, in our understanding in a parent's who have witnessed the loss of a child, for instance. The, the, the sheer agony of that. And there are going to be terms used in, these, in this portion of Scripture which God uses, which the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to use in his writing of the book of Genesis, in terminology and terms in which we may understand. Because we've already talked about, briefly anyway, and we're exposed to it continually as we read the Word of God, the attributes of Almighty God. But we're going to see words like grief and agony and things like that as as they're applied to God. In verse 5 it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And we see that the wickedness of man was great and every intention only evil. And not, not, just, a, not just a moment, not just a, a, an instance, but continually. And we remember from an earlier sermon that in the chapter, or earlier in chapter 6 actually, that contemporary society had deemed many of these evil God-haters as what? As men of renown. But God's response is repulsion at their wickedness. As well as we look at this, this tells us that God sees sin a certain way different from us 
that sin is primarily an internal matter. It's not simply a question of such outward acts such as adultery and theft and, and murder, but of the thoughts of the heart. Our observations of the outward acts of a sinner may lead us to understand what a man is like inside. We are unable to do it any other way when you think about it. Jesus said, you, you tell a tree by its fruit. Does it bear good fruit? Does it bear bitter fruit? That's our main and perhaps only way of really truly um, understanding and maybe having an understanding about the people we know and the people in our life. But God looks at the heart and tells us that a man is a murderer, even though for one reason or another he may not have committed murder, may not have actually killed another person. We say he is a murderer because he murders, God says he murders because he's a murderer. I hope we can see the distinction here, and I suspect we can. It made, made, makes us think of Matthew 15, and just two verses of Matthew 15, 18, and 19 there. It says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And as we continue to look at this particular verse, verse 5, the recurring phrase, on the earth, anticipates the necessary purging of the now polluted land by the waters of the flood. We know what's coming. And it's also reminiscent of how we, when we did get to that portion where Cain slew Abel, and the the ground, the real estate, the land received the blood of the murdered man, Abel. How significant that is. And we, we also looked at and, and studied how, how Israel and the land of Israel and, and how important the, the land is, how sacred it is because God made it. But now it's polluted beyond, beyond repair and God is going to purge the land. We see the severe depth of wickedness of man as they plot evil as a matter of lifestyle. It comes up again in Genesis 8. Even in Genesis 8, as God makes a covenant with Noah, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the what? The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood doesn't it change the, ne- the essential nature of man, the essential sinful character of man, of our human heart. But it does exact justice and preserve the lone remnant of a blessed lineage. Because remember as well, as God created and made and, and spoke creation into existence, he also rendered and, get, and gave us a promise in, in chapter 3. He promised us that the head of the serpent would be crushed. And we know God keeps his promises. The revelation of the Lord's response may be divided into two sections. His pain and his plan. In verse 6 it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
grieve. In the authorized version, it says, and the Lord repented that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This can be a bit troublesome because we know elsewhere in the Bible, particularly in, in the book of Numbers and 1 Samuel and Psalm, for instance, it says that the Lord does not repent. So how do we reconcile that? When we think about the disposition of God, and, and certainly God is not sorrowful or sad. He's God, as Calvin says, puts it, he says, God is forever like himself in his celestial and happy repose. But it's important for us to try to truly understand how great God's hatred of sin is. Remember the things Tyler preached about last week when he talked about uh, the chicken thief and all that, and, and, and the preacher was told, well, now you're meddling. But in reading last week, I came across a statement from one of the Puritans, I think, I think Thomas Brooks, I'm not sure. He said, there is no small sin because there is no small hell and there is no small God. And the Holy Spirit in, in, in his allowing us and accommodating our finite mind to try to understand the heart of God puts things in words and language we can understand. Traditionally, theologians will explain the use of divine repentance and emotions such as grief as uttered in deference to the limitations of our human understanding. There are things about God because he is infinite that we, we can't even begin to approach to understand. The Bible tells us his ways. God said, my ways are higher than your ways. But our God loves us and he deigns and condescends to, for, in order that we may understand the things he has to say to us, the revelation that he gives to us. So he uses this language and we, we understand what the word grief means. We understand when we are sorrowful, when we regret and when God transfers to himself what is peculiar to human nature, it's known by the term anthropopathia. Anthropopathia. I think that's how you say it. I like to give those big words to everybody here, particularly our young folks, so that some way, somehow, you can work them into a sentence this week, okay? <laughs> anthropopathia, okay? And, it, and it's, it's along the lines of, of when talking about God, as a, who is a spirit, applying anthropomorphic attributes to him. That God has eyes and he sees, that he has an arm that he waves over the land, all these things. They're done for our benefit so that we can understand this, this high and lofty God. And it helps us. And it's vital to remember that God's response of grief over the of grief over the creating of humanity, it's not remorse in the sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. That's extremely vital for us to understand because this message is about God even though we begin talking about man. Joe talked about, in the exhortation, Joe teed it up. And, and, and uh, we talked about um, the 
memorial Thursday night on human sexuality, and these things came up. I, I think I leaned into John Kesting. I said, my whole sermon's getting preached tonight. So I'm only doing this for all of y'all who weren't there on Thursday night, okay? But nonetheless, God makes no mistakes. Because we will hear that. And it may not be said in exactly those words sometimes. But I've heard on quite a few occasions that I know that I'm not supposed to be a boy. Or whatever it is. God makes no mistakes. His pain, God's pain is source, it has as its source the perversion of human sin. And God created man as good, right? Very good. And the making of man is no error on God's part, but rather what man has made of himself. God indicates to us here that the rampant universality of sin has become his source of anguish. Yet this anguish does not reflect impotent remorse. No, far from it. It also entails God's response at the injury inflicted by human rebellion. So I made reference to two responses, his pain and his plan. So as we look at verse 7 here, as we just move along, so the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom... From, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Here we see the judgment of God that is to be executed upon man, upon his creation. God says literally, I will blot out. This verb indicates that there will be a complete removal of one thing from another. And we see that term blot out often. We see it when we begin to read, like, for instance, Psalm 51. David asks God to blot out his sin. And we know that what's coming is that the human race, as we know it, is going to be blotted out. Now, as the elders met one uh, Wednesday morning, I I talked to Luke and, and Joe, and I told them that I had a burden that I would really like to preach um, the doctrines of grace uh, to the church in a in a formal way. And the doctrines of grace often are constituted as in the acrostic tulip. Okay, the Calvin you know the Calvinist acrostic. T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. I said, you know, I really would like to preach through that. And one thing I discovered that I already really knew was how wise Joe and Luke are, much wiser than I am. And we talked about it. We had a good conversation about it. And in the conversation, we ended up going, you know what? God is going to present us with opportunities to, to present these doctrines of grace. And I said, you know what, that makes perfect sense. And I think this is one of those mornings. This is one of those mornings as we have these very few verses here that we can look at the doctrine of grace 
that has to do with total depravity, or as some people will call it, radical corruption. Now, I'm going to keep referring to it, I think, as total depravity because the, the, the acronym or the acrostic TULIP works with a T, not a, not a uh, R. It's not RULIP. But doctrine is an important term, and it's used 51 times in our Bible. It simply means, it's very simple, it just means instruction. It means um, teaching something uh, imparted from an authoritative source. So the authoritative source this morning is not me. It's the Word of God. It's not me. So here we are, and I want to spend a few moments. I'm not going to, this is not, they're, they're not hours in front of us this morning, folks, okay? But nonetheless, I'm going to spend a few moments highlighting the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption. And to accomplish this, I'm going to camp out a little bit on what Steve Lawson calls the Mount Everest of theology, and that's the gospel according to John. And I have nine points, and I'm just going to outline, just lay out the points to you. Each and every point could be almost a sermon in and of itself. But it's going to be okay. The Lord Jesus emphatically taught that the human race is, in its unconverted state, radically corrupted by sin. The use of the term radical or total and total depravity doesn't mean that we have sin to our uttermost. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we have sin so much that we, there's not, a, there's not a, a, a spot where we can go where we sin even more. For there are things that people can do, unregenerate people can do, that are good, that are considered good, that are considered virtuous. Sons can love their mother. People can, people can help little old ladies across the street because it, it's a good thing to do and it helps them be safe. We can create a fine work of art. But rather, total depravity refers to the fact that sin has affected the whole person. Mind, emotion, and will all are polluted or perverted or contaminated by sin. Perhaps a visual would be if I took a dry sponge and submitted it into a bucket full of vinegar and squeezed it and then allowed the, the vinegar to be absorbed entirely by the sponge and pulled it out. I've got a saturated sponge full of vinegar. Then if I wring it out and I wring it out and I wring it out as much as I possibly can, there's still going to every every portion of that sponge is going to be contaminated, if you will, or affected by that vinegar. You're going to be able to smell it. It's still going to be damp, and that's how, that's how sin has affected us. Jesus didn't sugarcoat things as he expounded on the complete ruin of the entire human race by sin. And I want to describe this briefly by looking at nine areas of the depravity of man by sin, looking at Scripture and the Gospel of John. Number one. I'm going to name them by, I'll just go say number one, and I'll say what it is. Because my wife likes to take notes. I know Wink does too. I know Liesl does if she's, if she's awake this morning. God bless her. Anyway, the first point, and this was actually discussed uh, Thursday night, is spiritual blindness. 
when we look at this doctrine that's so important, spiritual blindness, Jesus taught that all men are spiritually blind. Jesus taught this. In John 3, verse 3, he says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Luke 17, Jesus told the Pharisees to, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in your midst, in the midst of you, and he's referring to the person of Jesus and in the reign of God in the hearts of those following Jesus. But they were too blind to see it. The kingdom of God is literally in person, in Jesus, right in front of them. Yet they could not see it. Point number two is this aspect of spiritual alienation. Jesus says that every person enters the world outside the kingdom of God excluded is excluded from his kingdom. In John 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Scripture speaks for itself. Number three is spiritual death. Jesus taught that unconverted people live in an empty live an empty existence in this world devoid of spiritual life. Despite asking someone, well, do you church? Do you go to church? Well, yeah, I don't go to church, but I'm a very spiritual person. And they may, they may consider that, and they may believe that, but in the context of our understanding, we would say, no, that you are spiritually dead, because our Lord says in John 5, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who, and those who hear will live. The reference here is to those who are spiritually dead. Unregenerate, unregenerate people are completely unresponsive to the things of God. Remember Paul said in Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's impossible to understand. You know, I... I Put a note in my in my notes here um, that I want to make. I want to point out something important as we as we who are people of who embrace doctrine in this church, as most as any reformed church do, and many certainly many Christian churches do. That we can see as we go along here how vital total depravity is, and how critical it is to understanding the remaining four points of the doctrines of grace particularly the doctrine of election. We really can't begin to, to engage someone with that unless we have a firm understanding of this doctrine of total depravity. Item number four, or excuse me, let me quote Calvin again. For, for some of us, he's a, an authoritative figure. As Calvin says, Christ shows us that we are all dead before he gives us life. This makes clear what man contributes toward his, towards his salvation. People don't like that. They don't like that. They don't like that God, our, our faith is a gift from God. That our trust in God is a gift from him. That our ability to repent of sin is a gift from God. Just think of it. And just, just think of it in just simple terms. Has anybody ever come up to you, and I think I've used, maybe I've used this example before with y'all, but I use it nonstop. Has anybody ever come up to you like on Christmas and given you a gift, blessed you with a gift? And the first thing in your mind is, ah, 
I didn't get them a gift. Now I got to get them a gift. We don't like owing anybody anything. We, that's been talked about already today. Joe talked about us having a dragon heart. How we, we, look, for, we look out for ourselves. And now this, this person, by giving me a gift, has not blessed me. He has put a burden that I don't want on my heart. Now I got to saddle up. I got to go over to Walmart or whatever store is open on Christmas Eve, and I got to get this cat something. I got to get him something for, for Christmas. That's how that's how it goes. Not not for Christians. We receive those blessings, and if not, we're going to learn. We have to learn how to receive blessings because we've already received the most uh, magnificent and and un, unpayable blessing. By God's grace and in faith in Jesus Christ. Number four is spiritual inability. Jesus taught that it is impossible for spiritually dead sinners to exercise saving faith. So where do we go? We go to John six. We all know that. We're gonna we're gonna kind of migrate to John chapter six, and we'll look at verses verse forty four a and then sixty three through sixty five. Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Now listen, there's no honest way to interpret this without doing extreme violence to the scripture. We understand Jesus declaring the bondage of the unregenerate to the will. The unregenerate will to, to sin, rather. Theologian Leon Morris says this, People like to think they come, or that they can come to Jesus entirely of their own volition. Jesus assures us that this is an utter impossibility. No one, no one at all, can come unless the Father draws him. Interestingly, there is a lot of conversation about that within evangelical Christianity. But also, I think it's apparent when you look at that scripture that there's a distinction here. There's a distinction here in these verses from John. It involves or revolves around the difference between two words, can and may. And the Bible is clear that the invitation to come to Christ is given to all. All may come. The invitation is there. Everyone is invited. We do that. But Jesus uses the word can, which tells us unequivocally that the ability to believe and come to Jesus is a gift from God as the Father and the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart of a spiritually dead man. And if I can venture all away from John just for, just for a moment here into Romans, in chapter 8, verse 7, as Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, the unregenerate mind, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And the end of the verse says, indeed, it cannot. 
I would submit to you that um, no matter what your doctrinal disposition is, whether you are agreeing with the things I'm saying, if you have unregenerate people in your life and you're praying for their salvation, I would submit that we all pray like a Calvinist because we all ask God to change hearts. There's something, there's something we know in, in our heart about that. Number five, spiritual slavery. Jesus continues to teach us that the unregenerate heart is entirely enslaved to sin. In John 8, verse 34, Jesus answered, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The lost sinner's true master is sin. It's clear that committing acts of sin is the inevitable result, not the cause of being enslaved to sin. And spiritual slavery, number five, is closely tied in with spiritual bondage, which is number six. Jesus taught us about another great bondage, and that is of being in bondage to Satan. In John 8, 44 and 45, he says this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus pronounced that the spiritual father of every unsaved person is the devil himself. That sweet little old granny, that tender-hearted woman, if she is not if she is not of Christ, she hates God. That's why we pray like we pray. That's why we are, we, we are uninhibited in, in wanting to share the truth and the beauty and the, and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone we encounter. And if we don't, we need to be checking ourselves on that. Number seven is spiritual deafness. Jesus taught that the unregenerate sinner is spiritually deaf. He's unable to hear and comprehend the essential truth of the gospel message. Again, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. John 8, verses 43, and then verse 47 says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Number eight is spiritual hatred. Jesus noted that unbelievers are God-haters because they are part of the world system. John 15, verse 18, and then 24 and 25 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The inner animosity of unbelievers towards Christ is often cloaked, often cloaked in an outward religiosity. In fact, many of the heresies of the Church of Jesus Christ what the church has confronted with have to do with the person of Jesus Christ and are born out of a hatred for God. 
And then the final one, number nine, okay, I'm through the list. I'm going to be through the list here in a second. Is spiritual rejection. Jesus teaches that the unconverted person who hates him also hates the Father. John 15, 23 says, Whoever hates me hates the Father also. Theologian William Hendrickson says, A person may imagine that he loves the Father while he hates the Son, but he deceives himself. And this holds true up to the present day and age. Men who scoff at blood atonement and reject the vicarious death of Christ do not love God. If they haven't, they're coming. They're going to arrive on your front doorstep. They're going to tell you how wonderful God the Father is. And in the same breath, they're going to reject Christ. And we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to share the love of God with them and to point out to point out the, the truth of who Christ is. So, <laughs> certainly not a lighthearted Mother's Day message, right? But I haven't forgotten verse 8. We're at verse 8 now, okay? I've saved it for last and want to close the message looking at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And here again is one of those instances in the Bible of, of the but. The but here doesn't nullify everything I just said. But what it does say is, but God. No matter, no matter what we do, no matter what has happened in, in the human race, but God. And Noah found favor from God. Who in here this morning has earned God's grace this morning? Raise your hands. Let it be shown for those who can't see the saints in front of me that not a hand went up. That's a good thing. Because we know what grace is and we know what it means. But the other thing we need to remember too is the recipient of grace is also is also deserving of judgment. So you see my point. That is dire and, 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 and bleak. The title of this, this message is a bleak diagnosis. Here we are, Noah, with, but Noah found favor or grace. Either of those words will work, depending on the translation you have and how you study it, in the eyes of the Lord. Regarding the end of our selected passage today, I want to share uh, a quote from James Montgomery Boyce. That paints a rather good picture, better than I could, actually. Boy said this, Could a blacker picture of the utter depravity of man and his rebellion against God ever be painted? It is hard to think so. Yet just at this point, when the black thunderclouds of God's wrath against human sin are at their most threatening, a small crack appears. Grace shines through, and the promise of a new day dawns. End quote. As much as we have regarded sin in the first six chapters of the Bible, we have also seen the grace of God in dealing with Adam and Eve, in dealing with Seth, in dealing with Enoch, 
But in this, in this passage of Scripture here, where we've camped out and been, been hammering on sin and the depravity, the total depravity, here's the first explicit mention by word, the term grace. We've seen the grace of God, certainly, because we know how God could have rightfully dealt with these people and but we see we saw his grace as he dealt with the people we saw we see god's grace coming out but now we see it expressed explicitly as noah found grace and what's the takeaway for us every truth about the doctrine of total depravity we need to take that with us we need to have that today And if you belong to God, then you are a recipient of his grace. Knowing that you did not earn it, you found it because God laid your heart open to receive it. I have a sheet here, and I'm not going to... Don't panic. I'm wrapping this up. I have a sheet here, and I've had it for a number of years. In fact, I just printed off one for Kay to give to a friend of ours. 68 things that happen to a believer at the point of salvation. Number one. No, I'm not going to go through all this. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I want to, but I'm not going to. But let me just, let me maybe just randomly just look. I'm looking down. Number nine on the list is we are born again spiritually. And all of these have scriptural citations next to them. Number 11, we are made righteous. 15, we are adopted. We are complete in him. We are sanctified. Number 25, we are, or 24 rather, we are buried with Christ. And 25, we are raised with Christ. We are in Christ. We are in the Spirit. We are dead to the law. We are delivered from the law. We are made near to God by the blood of Christ. Christ is our head. He is our husband. He is our advocate. He is our brother. We are a new creation. We are members of his body. We are his bride. We are his saints. We are his holy priesthood. We are the light in the Lord. And of course there's more. Doctrine is an important thing. Truth is important. We can't we can't equivocate on it. We can't vacillate on it. We can't compromise on it. We can't do any of those things. But as we've been reading through some rather um, rigorous reading in our to the word as we've gone through Ezekiel and Jeremiah and now in Zechariah and, and all these books of the Bible we see how all these all these truths have are, are born have been born and established and rooted and grounded in Genesis and as we look at it here's here's an example and a revelation of who our God is because we know who we are and we certainly know who we are apart from God, especially someone like me who came to the Lord later in life. 
who came to the Lord not by any by any desire to go, you know what, this this is terrible. I need to go find something better. No. As the psalm says, God reached down and he grabbed my hand and he pulled me up out of the miry clay and he set my feet upon a rock. I didn't even have enough strength or wherewithal or knowledge or understanding to, to lift my hand up unless the Holy Spirit or until the Holy Spirit put that in me to do that. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? you belong to Christ that's such a glorious thing and that's where we are but just as the gospel is good news just as the gospel is the most poignant jewel or gem we could ever see if I took it and held it up to the back of this white paper we might be able to see it we might be able to discern it all it looks kind of nice but if I take a piece of black velvet and hold that gem up to it, all of a sudden the contrast and everything is just wonderful. Every facet of it starts to, to show through and the clarity of it and the beauty of it. So this is, even though this is hard, it's fundamental and we need it. We need to understand it because it, it allows us to, to see the world and understand and not just dismiss the world not just condemn the world, but want the world to know. To, we want our God, we want Jesus to be vindicated. We, we want everybody that we come into contact with to know who Christ is. It is, it is, a, it is a rough thing to think about. Someone we love, or someone we may not even hardly know, to understand what awaits them when they shuffle off this mortal coil. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we desire to be strong in our faith, strong in our doctrine, and unwavering as purveyors of your truth. Bestow on us your full armor as we seek to advance your kingdom in our households, communities, schools, and workplaces. And all the people belonging to God say, Amen. Amen.